Howdy. <laughs> it's wonderful to be here. It's wonderful to be in this context. Sanctuary is the place to be, um, in my view. So I'm delighted to be here. Um, we hope you all had a wonderful Christmas and a Christmas season. Incidentally, you know, Christmas in the church calendar isn't just a day. It's the 12 days of Christmas. You probably know that song. Um, so we're still in it, and it's this celebration of the fact God has come. Um, you know, for years, <laughs> I didn't really value the historical church very much in terms of its leaning into and setting up of the calendar. Uh, it kind of eluded me. I didn't quite get it. You know, it starts with Advent in December, and which is the celebration of an anticipation of the coming of Christ. And then Christmas is the celebration of his coming and being here, actually arriving. And then you move into Epiphany, which is in January, which is the celebration of how God reveals himself. You know, having an Epiphany means you see something you didn't see. It celebrates the Magi and about how they discovered Christ and they were pagans and, and, and that whole story. Um, and then it moves into Lent, which is that horrible, wonderful time we all have where we sort of try to make room for God and lean into the story of Jesus' life that leads up to his passion and dying on the cross, which is Holy Week and Good Friday, and then the resurrection of Easter, and then it culminates pretty much in the, uh, uh, in the day of Pentecost and the season of Pentecost that that kind of rounds out the calendar, and then the rest of the time is called sort of ordinary time or common time. But leaning into the calendar always seemed a bit obscure to me um, because what really captured me in my own heart in terms of faith is, is more just personal piety, you know, loving God. I, I call myself an evangelical because I love this idea of having a personal faith of the actual person of Jesus Christ. And I love that notion. I, I think that faith has to have a realness to it in a real person. Uh, theologians or philosophers would call it an ontological reality. In other words, there's, God has to actually be there. And, and, and it's that notion that we don't just have a notion of God, but we actually are encountering the person of God. It's what the psalmist said when he said, uh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, I can sign up for that program, right? Um, I love texts like this. This is out of Hosea. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Just simply acknowledge him. Let us press on. In other words, do this intentionally, persistently. Let us press on to acknowledge him, that he's just here, even though you don't see him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. I love that. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. In other words, something goes on in faith that's more than you processing things or believing things. There's an encounter. Um, I love texts like this as well, Revelations 3.20, that says basically the same thing. This is Jesus after the resurrection, and it's, he's making this declaration. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. One exegete uh, scholar guy said um, that, 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 that the English translation here is not very good. When it says he's knocking, it's, it would be better to say he's pounding on the door, that there's this sense of intensity, that he's trying to get our attention like we're too distracted inside. Um, and so it says, I stand at the door and I pound. If anyone hears me, hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and will eat with them and they with me, which is a nod to the Eucharist. It's this notion that he's present with us somehow as we gather in ways that are real, 
right, in our experience. So, so faith to me is not just a mental construct or an ideal. It's connecting with a person who is beyond just being a person in a human sense. And, and I think this is a big part of spirituality. It's, it's learning to love the person of God and uh, to love God with, with our personal soul and to flat out adore him and to be awed by him. And I have a way that I love to love God, and I think that that's right. Uh, For some reason, things like following the church calendar for many years just seemed like it was distant from that. Uh It seemed a little wooden to me, Um, like I was being called to participate in something that I really didn't feel in my bones. Like it was, you know, it felt a bit fake, a bit forced, kind of religious is how I would have termed it. Um, You know, so take the season of Advent we just finished. I mean, it's a call for we as Christians not to get in touch with what we're feeling at the time, but for us to get outside of ourselves, past our own situations, and to enter a longing that was palpable to ancient Israel for the coming of Messiah. But that's like, you know, that's like thousands of years removed from us. But the call is for us to enter into it. It's a call for us to enter the anticipation of what was there then, not what's here now. And so, you know, there's sermons on hope and peace and joy and love centered around the expectation of the coming of Messiah when you or I don't necessarily feel hopeful or peaceful or joyful or loving, <laughs> you know, it's, but it's this call for us to enter that. And so for the, where this is rooted is that the early church fathers urged Christians to center their lives on the calendar that they were laying out because they believed we needed to intentionally enter the gospel story. That we needed to to remember it. Now, when we use the term remember in the modern world, we tend to just think of reflection or kind of a, oh, remember when we did this last year? Oh, yeah, you know, that kind of thing. But remember in the ancient world meant to literally make it present, to, to pretend it was happening right now. So that when we read the manger scene in Luke, uh, you know, uh, uh, or the Magi coming, or that kind of thing, that we're to actually kind of go in there in our imaginations, our holy imaginations, and actually see that God is stuck in a baby. And the implications of that, and what is that, and what would that have been like? So to actually kind of do that, kind of to remember. In fact, if you, well, this is why we do the Eucharist and the celebration of the Eucharist, is that we do it as though we're actually happening. We use the very words of Jesus. This is my body, as though he's standing here. This is my blood, as though he's standing here. And then for us, he is standing here. Right? So we remember is kind of the call. It, it's one thing to be aware of a story. It's quite another thing to enter it. And so we're told that this Advent expectation that we see played out in sacred texts is how we're to expect that longing they had for the first coming of Messiah. And, and we enter into that and we feel it. We read of the women who, who were distraught because if they were barren, one of the reasons they were so distraught about barrenness is because they would not have the opportunity to bear Messiah. This was very real in their culture to them. And so we see uh, those kinds of things. And what's supposed to happen is that we're supposed to see what's played out in the text as how we are to incorporate those same kind of emotions and feelings and opinions and heartfelt attitudes to our expectation of the second coming of Christ. 
That's what Advent's supposed to do for us. So this, it seems like it's, 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 it's a bit of a stretch, right? Um, the season has lots of longings that are not at all uh, associated um, um, with this notion of what is going on inside me today because of the circumstances of my life. It's taken me quite a while to see that there's value, though, in doing it and actually letting the calendar frame me. Uh, but it is at, the reason for this, is at the heart of why sanctuary is the kind of place that it is. And so this morning, I wanted to talk a little bit about this. I wanted to explain the rationale besides why we're kind of a church that has this odd blend of historical and evangelical, charismatic, and liturgical. Is it just that we're mixed up? What is the, there's a very intentional reason behind this. And so I wanted to sort of explicate that just a little bit. We do this because we believe, as the church historical has believed, that there are two very different kinds of spiritualities that we're called to embrace and live out in our lives. They're caught uh, in a story in John's gospel that's kind of interesting. And it's Ron, uh, what's his name? Rollheiser? Um, brilliant guy, Catholic priest, who's written on spiritual formation. And he's the one, when I first stumbled into this, he's the one that's explicated this kind of notion using this text of different kinds of formation or different kinds of spirituality. And it, I think it's so brilliant. So here's the text. It's John 21. It's, we're leaping into the story where Jesus is talking to Peter about his love, Peter's love for him. And he's asking Peter, do you love me? Well, you remember that Peter denied Jesus three times. It's interesting, Jesus is asking him three times, do you love me, right? So this is the third time that Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me? And it agitates Peter a little bit, hurts Peter, his feelings a little bit. So let's pick up the narrative there. It says, the third time Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt. Because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And then Jesus said, feed my sheep, as he had just said three times or two times before. And then Jesus launches into this idea. Verily, verily, I tell you that when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were older, one version says mature, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. So here's the juxtaposition. Uh, he's actually predicting Peter's death here about how Peter will die. But Ron, uh, the Rollheiser basically says that the mentality, the internal processing that was going on in Peter shows two very distinctive ways of being open to God. One is dressing yourself up and going where you want to go. And the second is that you're stretching out your hands and you're being dressed by another and taken where you would not have ordinarily gone, where you don't necessarily want to go. So he juxtaposes those two ideas, these two kinds of spirituality. I think one of them, the first one, where you dress up and go where you want to go, I think is this expression of our love for God. Just, you know, I love God, I, I, this is where we get to make calls. We're touched by grace, and as a result of grace, there's a reaction within our soul. It's not unlike when the doctor hits you, you know, on that part of your knee when you go in for a, 
for a uh, checkup or something, and they're trying to see if you're neurologically s- secure. <laughs> so they hit that part, and all of a sudden, the re- natural reaction is this, right? When they hit that spot, this happens. This, this, when grace hits you, something happens. And that something is us loving God back. There's a text that says, we love him because he first loves us. So, so what happens is he, we feel his love, we feel his grace, and there's this impulse back out of us toward God. It, I, Jesus said this is really important. This is out of Mark 12. Love the Lord your God with your heart, with, with, with your soul, all your soul, and with your mind, and with your strength. I think it's really important that we understand God loves it when we love him, when we dress ourselves up and we go out on God dates, you know, that we just chase God, right? That we move toward him in the way we like to do it and celebrate him the way we understand that. I think God loves that. Um, this is only possible by grace. I mean, Romans 3 clearly says that it's written that no one is righteous on their own, not even one. No one understands. There's no one who seeks God. I mean, the only reason you or I ever seek God is because God put the capacity of seek in us. Uh, theologians call it prevenient grace. It means that before you had a want to to love God, he put the want to in you. So somehow we encounter God's story and faith comes to us. Faith is a gift and faith is that impulse to run at God, to love God and to open ourselves up to him. And we begin to love him with our hearts. You know, you heard what Jesus said, love him with your heart, your mind, your will, your strength. We love him with our hearts. And I think that's referring to just the simple idea that that something in us leaps, (laughs) that there's this kind of leap of faith or leap of love that we have towards God. We, We get taken up with the Jesus story. And the God story, he's the creator. He's the sustainer. There's some kind of problem, but he runs at us even in the problem. And he wants to restore. And that in some future age, there's going to be a restoration of all things. And we hear that story and something in us goes, I, lo- I love this story. I love this person. I love this God. So we're loving God with our heart. And then he talks about loving God with our mind. I think that's the willingness to learn about this God. Now, there's more unknowing than knowing in God. I mean, the, the, in the very language, even if we say God is just. I mean, it, it, theologians throughout history have said every time you try to use a word, that God is more dissimilar to the word than similar because language is so difficult, right? It's just hard to talk about what God is or who God is. Just like if I asked you, who are you? You could say, well, uh, I'm Ed Gunger. Or, oh, you wouldn't say that. But <laughs> if you ask me, who are you? I say, I'm a younger, I'm married to Gail, I've got seven grandkids, you know, which I named the grandkids before the children because the grandkids matter more than the children. <laughs> They're God's reward for having children. Anyway, I mean, I could tell you a lot of things about me, but the bottom line is at some point, I'm going to get to, I can't tell you who I am because who I am is ineffable. It's beyond words. You can't tell me who you are. You're beyond words. And you're just a created being. How much more the uncreated? God. So we, we, it's very difficult, but something in us has the impulse to learn as much as we can. Even though we know that it's more we don't know than what we know, we want to try to know what we can know. And so this is why we're willing to become, uh, you know, being catechized. That means you're willing to be taught from the scriptures and, and you, you, you start treasuring sacred texts 
that talk about God and God speaks to us through, enough that you want to engage with those texts. And you look forward to coming to moments like this where the scriptures are articulated and, and discussed and celebrated and explained. And so you, you, there's something in you that says, I want to love God. I want to love you with my mind. It's not that you're ever going to get completely convinced in every way, but you, you just, you're just loving him that way. And then they're loving him with your will means that you're willing to jump in and, and not only love him with your heart and not only love him with your mind, but you take your will, the thing that makes you choose things. You say, you know, today I want to choose you over not choosing you. I want to choose right over doing wrong. And so I want to love you with my heart, love you with my mind, and love you with my will. It's me dressing up and running after God, right? It's, it's called me, it's called first love by Jesus, he says in Revelations 2, he's chiding the church a bit. And he's saying, you know, you guys are doing some pretty good things. But the bottom line is, you've left your first love. You, you've lost that kind of passion of just loving me with your heart and your mind and your will. And this has gotten a little flat and dead. So I think it's very important. It's very beautiful. We evangelicals, we get the importance of this. Because it captures spontaneity. It captures passion. It captures essence. It, it, it's, it's, it's existential, which means it's, it's based on experience, and we like that, right? But then there's this other kind of spirituality that is talked about in this text, where we're not dressing up and going where we want to go. All we're doing is putting our hands out, and someone else is dressing us, or something else is dressing us, and taking us where we don't necessarily want to go. I think these are the places in spirituality where we're being asked to go against our own grain, where we're being invited into doing things that we don't just naturally like to do, that we probably need to do. This is the places of spirituality that hurt, where Jesus hurts your feelings, because, you know, just like a, not meanly, but just like a friend that looks and you say, you know, you really think you're patient? You're not very. And you go, oh, oh, you know, but faithful are the wounds of a, of a friend, right? So there are times when God needs to kind of get in, your, get in your space and talk to you and take you where you don't necessarily want to go. I think that the call of the historical church for disciples to celebrate this kind of spirituality, a classic example of that is the calendar. Because there's something outside of ourselves that's dressing us up. There's something outside of ourselves that's bringing us to places that we're not just naturally going on our own. So when Advent started this past month, I guarantee you, in fact, part of when it started, I was thinking, ah, I don't necessarily want to do this because I, I didn't feel inclined to long for Christ returning in a special way. I mean, I always kind of do, but I was busy. <laughs> and, uh, and I didn't necessarily want to enter this ancient longing for the Jews of Christ's first coming right? I, I didn't feel much of those other Advent emphases either, emphases either, like hope, you know, or, or peace, or joy, or love. I mean, those are all being associated with Jesus' appearance. I wasn't, I wasn't just, it didn't feel natural to me. I was much more open to those things of my present moment, you know? Like, my hope really was I wouldn't be too stressed over Christmas. My, my longing for peace was simply versus fighting family, you understand what I'm saying? So it's just like, I wasn't, I wasn't kind of, but, but what I did was I, I chose to submit to it. 
I chose, and what that means is that I listened to the stories and I used my imagination. And I tried to go back to their situation and the chatter of how Christ was going to come and the centuries of anticipation of that that starts in Genesis of somebody that was going to come that was going to begin to right all wrongs, that God would come into the world. And I, and I, and, and I thought of the hope of God coming into the world, right? And, and, and then I began to think about how that would cause peace, the righting of wrongs, and, and, and how joy would emerge because of the expectation of good. I mean, God just landed in Bixby. Right? You see what I'm saying? I mean, that kind of idea that he's actually here. And, and then I, I started listening to the text about repentance and saying, I want to prepare my heart for these, for, for these foreign impulses, the joy connected to his coming, the, all that kind of stuff. I wanted to be open to that. And, and so I felt myself getting, I put my hands on, I felt myself getting dressed and I felt myself getting taken where I wasn't naturally wanting to go. And then Christmas came and I read that beautiful verse in Luke, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not freak out. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for everybody today in the town of David. A Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And I, I, I sat there and I thought, wait, God has come. God has come. God has come. I mean, if you really lean into that and think about that, Emmanuel, it's something you'd want to shout from the rooftop. It, 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 it's something that asks you, how does it make you feel? I sat there and said, how would I feel if, if, if Jesus just showed up in Tulsa? How, how would I feel about that? I mean, uh, how, would I be less afraid of terrorism? Would I be less afraid of all the ills that life contains? Then I ask myself the question, does the fact that he came 2,000 years ago, does it have a lingering effect? Should it form how I approach my life today? That God has come, that he gets it, that he's experienced the human life? And then what does it mean that he is coming? In other words, these are bigger than how I feel at the moment questions. And as an evangelical, charismatic, I'm usually only asking how do I feel at the moment questions? See? And, and, and when I consider these bigger than how I feel questions, they started to dress me. They started to take me where I wasn't planning on going. This is a kind of discipleship that you find in the historical church. I didn't find them in my evangelical roots, but you find them in the historical church. This is the kind of discipleship we are intentionally using to frame out the experience you have week in, week out in sanctuary. Very intentionally. We're not just coming to the services trying to hear what the Holy Spirit's saying right now and then just speaking on whatever we want to speak to. We feel the Spirit is saying at the last minute, even though we know and always say the Holy Spirit has the right to change whatever he wants. And there are times when we have an intention to go one way and we feel the Spirit pulling us another way and we will follow the Spirit. But that that's can be a real excuse for just doing what you want to do, dressing up and going where you want to go all the time. It's not only true in how we celebrate the calendar. This is true in how we celebrate the text, sacred text. We preach from the lectionary. I mean, you can't get more religious than that. 
You know why? Because the lectionary is telling you what to preach until we die. It cycles every three years and it goes through every one of the texts and tells the whole story. Where's the Holy Ghost in that? Right? And so we submit to it. We put our hands out, it dresses us and takes us where we preachers don't necessarily want to go. Why is that? Because, listen, all of us have our favorite texts. When I was growing up, we said, some of you will know this, some of you are just, you're too young and you're unfortunate souls. But, but the, 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 some of you remember the old bread box, little, little bread box that you'd put scriptures in, there'd be like 100 cards in there. How many of you remember that? See, there's a few of us that actually are saved. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Narrow is the way. So these, let me inform you, as though you want to know. Um, these little bread boxes, they were, they were things you got at a Christian bookstore, and they looked like a, a loaf of bread, but they were like cast out of plastic or whatever. And, and then you have about 100 little cards, like half-inch by two-inch cards stuck in there, and they were all the cool verses. You know, God so loved the world, right? I can do more, all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? You know, my peace I have given to you. I mean, it's all the great verses. You are, anyone who is in Christ is a new person. All things have passed away, behold, all things. There are tons of super sweet verses that I take almost every day, if not every day, and I put them on, and I go where I want to go because I love to think about I'm a new creation in Christ. I love to think about that I've been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. I call them power thoughts. I love to think about the fact that his loving kindness is new every morning, that his loving kindness will fulfill me, not circumstances around my life. And I feed on those things, and I dress them up, and I go with those things because I love it, right? But then there are texts that are not nearly as nice. They're, they're, uh, they, and, and the truth is, you're not being faithful to sacred text if you only go with the text that you love. You need to go with texts that you love because they nourish you. I'm not saying one's better than the other. I'm saying this and, not this or. We need both. But you and I need to face the facts that we have, if we're going to be faithful to sacred text, you need to go beyond your favorite go-to texts. And you need, to, you need to, because texts are not designed to just be read by us, they're designed to read us. This is where it gets ugly. There's a text in Hebrews <laughs> that talks about the Bible being a tool that's used in sacrifice, where they would cut the animal, bleed it, then cut it open, pull out its organs cut the heart, cut the liver, open. Everything that was, the idea is in sacrifices, everything that's hidden is exposed. And, and, and talks about taking the, the, you know, like the, you know, the joints and snapping them open. And cutting it out so that the bones, even the bones, get cut. And the marrow exposed. And, and the Bible's, the, the, the book of Hebrews says, this is what the Bible's designed to do. To kill you, <laughs> dismember you, break your joints, cut open your bones, praise the Lord. <laughs> I 
So it says, for the word of God is alive and active. It is not something we control. It's not something we subdue with our knowing and our exegesis and our understanding. It's something that's more alive than that. It's active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. That's the nod to the notion of the sacrificial knife. It penetrates and it divides soul and spirit and joints and marrow. Things are flying. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart that I do not want anyone to know. I do not want those out. But it rips them out and exposes them. And then he says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight because of the word. Everything's uncovered. Everything's laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Because here's the bottom line. One of the things that doesn't excite me is I'm going to have to stand before God and answer for my life. So will you. I don't think you're going to have to answer for your sins because you're forgiven. It's not the sins that's the problem. It's the time we've wasted in our sin. It's the lost opportunities we were given because of our sin. We will one day answer to God, and that freaks me out. If it doesn't freak you out, you need to get freaked out. So there are tons of verses that do that to us, if we'll let them. They leave us bewildered. They leave us with more questions than answers. Example, Luke 12, this is Jesus not talking to the rich young ruler. He does say this to the rich young ruler. He's talking to everybody when he says it here. He says, sell your possessions and give them to the poor. Sell your possessions. So here, Jesus, sell your possessions, give them to the poor. Well, can you qualify that? I mean, isn't there a longing in you? I mean, to just nakedly hear that verse is very disruptive. You're supposed to sell all your possessions, give them to the poor. See, do you really think you're supposed to do that? No, I, I, that's what he said. See, do you suppose it? I don't know. It confuses me, but I think that's precisely the point. I think we should let texts confuse us. Because when I'm getting confused by that, it bumps up against other things like, how much do I love my stuff? And do I ever hear the cry of the poor? Maybe that's what he's after when he throws things at us that are confusing to us. Or here's another text, Jeremiah 1, see today I appoint you over the nations, Jeremiah, and, and over the kingdoms to, what's the ministry he has? Uproot, tear down, destroy, overthrow, build and plant. In other words, two-thirds of God's ministry is to destroy stuff. How encouraging is that? Because most of the time when people come to me, you know, they'll come to me and say, you know, I've got this son, we're just disenfranchised, and I really want God to just build and plant and repair that. What do I do? And the answer really is, well, he has to first uproot, tear down, destroy, and overthrow what you think about your son before he can build and plant. Or you may have a career that's in the, in the toilet, right? And how do you begin to resurrect that? God, build and plant. And God says, okay, before I can build and plant, let's uproot, tear down, destroy, and overthrow how you're approaching your career. What you think about your career, how you're treating people in your career. Because we have to destroy a whole lot of stuff before we can ever build and plant. See, this is the stuff that goes against our grain. This is the stuff we don't want to hear, but we need to hear. This is us putting out our hands and being dressed and taken where we don't want to go. Or here's, here's another, another one. This is Matthew 7. Huh? And as an as a evangelical and charismatic I say, Jesus, naughty Jesus, you shouldn't have said this. 
Because that goes against the very core. I mean, you know, we try to get people, we think salvation, you want to be saved? Say this prayer. Just declare Jesus is Lord. Everyone who declares him as Lord is saved. Right? That's what we say. And then Jesus goes and does something like this, and we just kind of want to go, yeah, just, just, oh, look over here. Nothing to see here. (laughs) Right? Keep moving. And here's Jesus, a little embarrassed of him. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only those who do the will of my Father is who is in heaven. Many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? We charismatics thought if anybody prophesied, they were really saintly. In your name, drive out demons. In your name, perform many miracles. <gasps> These are the holiest among us. And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Okay. What do you do with that? I think what we do with it is let it dress us and take us down and confuse us and disrupt us and us come on the other end saying, you know what? I'm glad I love the Lord. And salvation's something to do with following him. I don't have it down to a little exact formula because God can't be formulated. See, sometimes you need to let text dress you up and take you where you don't want to go. And that's why we use the lectionary. Because the lectionary is this three-year program that goes through these texts. And so what ends up happening is that we, you know, know, I was talking to Jonathan uh, earlier uh, about the preaching on on repentance in the middle of Advent. You know, Advent is hope. And as there's John the Baptist, who is, you know, let's face it, he's not the guy you want at the party. He's a Debbie Downer, right? I mean, so here's, and yet it's thrown right in the middle of hope. Why? Because there's something about that idea, something about that story that takes us places that all of a sudden bring us to a place of joy. Bring us, it it, it forms us. It's not us about just us loving God with our sensibilities. It's God drawing us into him through his word. That's why we do the lectionary. That's why we're committed to it. The weird part for me, and I'm ending with this, is just simply some of these things like the lectionary, like the calendar, and even particularly the table all seemed very odd to me, religious. I didn't like them. I didn't do it. Most of my Christian life, I never liked the table. You know why? Because I always just thought of it as the thing that made the service longer. And I just thought, you know, I... There's nothing in me when I think about just really loving the Lord. I think of singing. When I think about really loving the Lord, I think of entertaining thoughts. And I love that. But when I think of longing, longing, loving the Lord and give myself to the Lord, I don't think about crackers and juice. You, you understand what I'm saying? As, as a kind of memory tool, like flannel board, it, it never dawned on me that what this table is is not an expression of personal piety as a call to the mystery of the story. That when Jesus stood and he said, this is my body and this is my blood, and he said, this is the meal of eternal life. And, when, and you look at the mystery behind the Eucharist, that somehow it's his body and blood. What does that even mean? Entering into that, just the sacredness of that. I mean, if we brought the Ark of the Covenant in here, many of you that are biblically oriented understand that was the, the box that God inhabited. I mean, we would just be awed 
we, we, we would, it, it, you might say, can, 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 I, can I touch it? Dare I touch it? Especially if you saw the lost ark, right? I mean, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Will I melt? <laughs> right? <laughs> but, but there would be something. We'd have people lying for miles to just see it. What if something greater than the Ark of the Covenant is here? And so the mystery of that, the, the, in the Didache, which is this ancient document, it, it says that, that what this, this meal represented was just as these grains were all over the mountains and came together to the loaf, that we are God's people are brought together into the church. This is the meal of us. This is a call to usness. So do I feel it? You know, do I feel like, oh, as a result of my personal worship, I want to go up and have a moment with Jesus with crackers and wine and kind of remember he died for me? That's not the point. The reason this is so central is because it's the table that forms us and invites us to a life of being broken and being given to the world because this is our story. It's the meal of eternal life, which means somehow we're tasting eternal life. All of those mysteries are wrapped up in this table. That's why we do it. That's why we put it up so high. I've had people ask me, why is that so high? It's so high. Why are we here? Why do sometimes musicians lead from here? It's very intentional. We're not just, oh, how could it be cool? This would be kind of cool. What do you think it would look like? Oh, it's just, it'd be kind of cool. No, here was the, the ruling question. How do we get sanctuarians to understand that the reason that we gather is because of that? That we're coming to the table. That our hearts are coming to surrender to the story. That we're putting out our hands and saying, take me, dress me, and take me where I don't necessarily want to go. So when we leave here, we realize we have participated in a meal that has absorbed us. And we're going out into the world to be broken and to give our lives for people in the name of Christ. This is our story. Oh, sorry. Settle down, Ed Gunger. Settle down. (laughs) I'm telling you, the reason we do what we do is because we believe in these two spiritualities. And I didn't get it. I'll shut up with this. But it really helped me because when I see the formalism, and I've gone to churches that only have the formalism. They celebrate the calendar. They do the Eucharist. And I'll be honest with you. There's some of those places, are, and I don't mean this meanly or heartlessly. It grieves me. But they're like graveyards. No life. And then I've been to some churches that have so much life, I don't know what they are. <laughs> It's like crazy zones, right? So, I, so as an evangelical, as a charismatic, I thought I, there was a longing in me for more. And, and, and the analogy that I really feel the Holy Spirit helped me with, it's a simple analogy, is the analogy of the trellis in a garden. You have vines that are trying to live and with all their heart and all their soul and all their wherever they have. And if they don't have anything to hold on to that's beyond them, they're stilted on the ground. But if you put a trellis in there and you let the vine grab onto that trellis, that thing that once was alive, that thing that right now is only dead wood, and you let it grab onto it and cling and move, it's vibrant and alive. This is how marriages work. Marriages don't work if you just love when you want to love and Pay attention to each other when you feel the oomph to pay attention. You've got to make some rules. We have some rules in our house. Like we smile at each other. 
We kiss a lot. And we're kind. We speak kind words to each other. And it's a rule. You don't get to break those rules. What's interesting is I want to break the rules sometimes, and the rules actually point out where I'm broken. Because when I don't want to smile, why? See, sometimes the rules help to expose who you are. So on some level, what we have to understand is that this combo platter of a free-flowing, spontaneous love for God with these kinds of things like the calendar and Eucharist and lectionary and liturgy, if we can get those two things together, hot dog. Let's stand. That's what sanctuary is trying to do. Father, we're so grateful for your goodness. And as we enter this moment of Eucharist, help us. Help us to simply put our hands out, you to dress us up, and to bring us to you. Help this story that the, God, that, the, that the Eucharist tells of your sacrifice for the world and you pulling us together to enter that. Jesus, when you said to them, drink my cup, you were just trying to pass out juice or wine. They all had cups. But when you said to drink my cup, you were calling them to a life that's willing to die. Your cup. Help us get it. Help us, well, not that. Help us be gotten by it. Through Christ our Lord. Everybody said, amen. Why don't those of you helping us? Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.